Hi everyone, and welcome back to Seldom Make History. My name is Hannah, and today we're going to be discussing the first of the First Ladies. So, who is that? Well, Martha Washington. So, let's begin. Martha Patsy, as she was known to her loved ones, Dandridge, was born on June 2nd, 1731, to parents Fanny and Jack Dandridge, the first of their many children. Martha herself grew up like any other young lady of her time, not the wealthiest family, but comfortable. She grew up to have the knowledge of being a lady of the house, with skills in cooking, sewing, running a household, and so on. She was also taught dancing and was uncommonly taught basic math, and she could read and write, a rarity for the time. She was also very religious, a devout churchgoer to the Church of England. By 1748, Martha was old enough to be married. She was a beauty with dark hair, a short height, barely five foot, and a rarity for the time, white teeth. She was a dainty young woman. And while there was one such caller, a man thirty years her senior, but by all reports a kind and rich man, Daniel Park Curtis. Back then it was rather common to have rather large age gaps amid disease, childbirth, and poor health. But why a bachelor at such an older age? Well, his father was one less than savory character and one controlling man as well. But Daniel fell in love with a young Patsy and was determined to marry her, even with his father threatened him with disinheritance in 1748. And no one was willing to change his father's mind until Patsy herself went to talk to him. How did she manage this? It's unsure, but he, but he shockingly changed his mind, as he consented to the marriage between Daniel and Martha. But just a few months after this, he passed away. The couple postponed the wedding for a few months to mourn. But on May, on May 15, 1750, Martha was a few weeks shy of her 19th birthday. She wed Daniel in the parlor at Chestnut Grove, her family home. Not long after, they moved into their home, a plantation called, funnily enough, White House. Soon, Martha was pregnant with the first of her four children, and on November 19, 1751, Martha gave birth to a son named Daniel after his father. Martha and her husband delighted in this darling little baby. Not long after his birth, in April 1753, Martha had another baby, a daughter called Frances. Unfortunately, ten months later, Martha would lose her son Daniel to what is assumed malaria, and he died shortly after his second birthday. It's believed during his illness that Martha had developed her lifelong anxiety over her children's health. But not long after this, Martha fell pregnant again with her third child, a son who was called, who named John, who was called Jackie. Finally, in 1756, Martha gave birth to her last child, a daughter and her namesake called Martha, but she was called Patsy. Three months after, oh, I'm sorry. Although very watchful of her children, Martha would again lose another baby, her four-year-old daughter Frances, in April 1757. Three months after the death of Francis, Martha's husband and son Jackie fell ill. Her son survived, but her husband of only seven years died. He, like so many others, died without drawing up a will, so it was up to the English common law to decide who would get the inheritance. With barely any time to mourn, though, Martha set about ordering the business of ordering a tombstone for her husband and two mourning rings. And although she had her younger brother, who was an attorney, to be her go-between man, she herself oversaw the estate. But she wasn't contented to be alone. In colonial society, it was quite normal and expected for a widow to be soon remarried, within months usually, and Martha, a young, rich, pretty lady, would be quite the catch. Her two strongest suitors were two men, Charles Carter, a wealthy man but over 20 years her senior, and a much younger man, a man who was, yes, wealthy, but only eight months younger than her, one George Washington. In 1758, around March 14th or 15th, after a visit to a doctor in Williamsburg, the young Washington then went to the home of Martha, perhaps to see him for himself, the lovely widow. But here's the catch. I've read conflicting accounts on how they actually first met, so here's the other one. This is how their first meeting goes. 
So Martha would be invited to a friend's house named William on March 5th, 1758, and she accepted would meet a local beloved military man who came uninvited that would catch her eye. Several guests knew that upon meeting, the pair became engaged in conversation. Even after the dinner, they went into the parlor alone to continue talking. They talked so late into the night that their host begged them to stay the night. Martha was already staying, but Washington originally had planned to go home. So that's one version. I'm sure, I'm unsure which is which, but it's known in both the sources I read. But both the sources agree that they met again at Martha's home White House on March 25th. A little confusing, but I'm not sure. Since we have no letters during this time, it's rather hard to figure out how they felt. But it's assumed he felt safe enough to order a ring on May 5th. Then he came again on June 5th, and it's assumed their actual engagement is from this visit. The pair met again in the week of December while meeting. They finalized the date for their wedding, January 6th, 1759. The wedding was the talk of the town and a lavish affair, although they were actually wed is uncertain. Some say it was St. Peter's Church, there's a painting of it, or some claim it was at Martha's home in White House. Again, I'm unsure which. There's no record of her first reaction to seeing her new home, which was Mount Vernon, of course. Now it's a famous estate, but back then, well, it was a small estate nonetheless, but she knew of her husband's plans to turn it into this grand affair, and she was more than excited to go along with him and start this new chapter. Their first years together were by all accounts blissful. Of course, there's always a settling in, but I couldn't find any resentful accounts, so that is always refreshing. At the end of their first year of marriage, Washington wrote this to a cousin with, quote, I am now, I believe, fixed at this seat with an agreeable consort for life, and I hope to find more happiness in retirement than I ever experienced amidst a wide and bustling world, end quote. Throughout their years together, before the revolution, they were busy. Many accounts tell of the dignified Washington and the delightful and wonderful hostess Martha was. They enjoyed, of course, the dancing, but Martha usually only enjoyed a couple, but her husband was a bit of a party animal and could dance for hours. A funny fact is actually he danced for three hours straight with Keddie Green on a dare during the revolution, which I thought was funny. But for both of them, nothing compared to the love of their children. Martha was a seriously devoted mother who worried over and loved her children deeply. Both doted on them, Martha due in part to her past losses, she couldn't stand to be away from her children, and by all accounts she spoiled her children. And her younger daughter Patsy was a frail child, due in part to her epilepsy, which she, which she suffered all her life from. They tried everything and every remedy they could think of to treat her epilepsy, but unable to cure her, they showered her with love and affection. That was how they treated Patsy, and her brother Jackie was also very spoiled, but they wanted him to study and do well, become a very successful man. But their son had no desire for academics and often drove his father crazy with that. But Martha, again, always feared desperately for her son's safety, and both loved him deeply. He caused them some anxiety from disappearing during his inoculation, and to his engagement at just 18 to 15-year-old girl named Nellie Calvert. Although Washington at first wasn't pleased, Martha was quite happy with the match. So, in the spring of 1773, it seemed like Martha was enjoying her life. It could relax just a little bit. Her daughter, Patsy, while still had her seizures, it seemed she was slowly getting better. But on June 19th of that year, it seemed to be a normal, bright, and happy day. Jack's sweetheart, Nellie, was there. It was just the family, and by all accounts, Patsy was cheerful and happy. Tragically, though, around 4 o'clock without any warning, Patsy started convulsing. She fell out of her chair and onto the floor. Her father jumped out of his chair and ran to cradle her in his arms, and only after a few agonizing minutes, Patsy suddenly stilled and died at only 17 years old. To say this was a terrible thing is an understatement. To lose a child is a terrible, terrible thing, and I can't even imagine it. Martha and Washington grieved deeply for their loss, and so did her son, Jackie. He offered for his parents to come to New York, where he was in school for a change of pace, but they declined. The only thing Martha wanted, it seemed, was to have her only remaining child at home with her. 
Jackie returned home in December and stayed with them. A year later, he married Nellie on February 3, 1774. Martha didn't attend as she was still in mourning and only wore black and didn't want to put a damper on the joyous day. But, despite their losses, dangerous ties would soon be coming, and it's the rather famous taxes. Yep, anyone who knows about the American history will know of the Intolerable Acts. By this time, it was in full swing. There's not much information if Martha participated in her husband's complaints and letters of said acts. But it's assumed when Washington went to attend the Continental Congress, one of his companions, a man named Edmund Peddington, said of Mrs. Washington, quote, I was pleased with Mrs. Washington and her spirit. She seemed ready to make any sacrifice and was cheerful, though I knew she felt anxious, end quote. Little would she know that the last years of peace at her beloved home would be 1774. Because on June 14, 1775, it was clear that the Second Continental Congress would have Washington be the leader of the Continental Army. Washington waited three days before telling Martha, starting off his rather long letter with, quote, My dearest, end quote. He worried for her happiness and well-being during his absence. He wrote to friends and family as well to keep an eye on Martha, not because he was overbearing, but because he loved her and wanted her to be safe. Six days after the Battle of Bunker Hill, I'm sorry, excuse me, six days after the Battle of Bunker Hill, he wrote a short letter reassuring her of his love for her with, quote, I retain unalterable affection for you, which neither time nor distance can change, end quote. Martha herself stayed at Mount Vernon while waiting. She expressed her intent upon joining her husband for camp in the fall, and she kept busy visiting her friends and son and his wife Nellie while keeping up her writing to her husband. But by early October 1775, it was obvious that this war wouldn't end soon, nor would Washington be able to come home. So he did what would be a occurring theme throughout these years. Martha was asked to join to winter camp with him. Two weeks later, he had his reply, but Martha wanted to settle their home and have all her, ne- all her needs for the months away in the bitter northern weather. So she, along with her son Jackie and his new wife Nellie, a nephew named George Lewis, they set off on November 16th, 1775. After arriving in Philadelphia on November 21st, she was first she saw firsthand how much of an American icon her husband was, and by now extension she herself was now a public figure. Along her stop, she'd be greeted enthusiastically by the people along the way, being called Lady Washington. But I read she didn't really want this title, but the papers and the people loved it, so it stayed. On December 11th, Mar- Martha and her group arrived at Cambridge, much to her husband's relief. While there, she made herself known to the aides of her husband, some of, their general, some of the other generals' wives, and to make sure of her husband's comfort. Martha easily made friends with the likes of Catherine Green and Lucy Knox, who would become lifelong friends. Throughout the winter, she stayed with her husband. Her steadfast and listening ear were a blessing to her commander husband, who kept her well informed of all the politics and military movements. They truly were a team in this regard. On April 4, 1776, Washington began moving his troops to New York City. Martha and her son and his wife also went, but by a different route. They went through Connecticut, escorted by two of his aides. Martha met her husband four days later on the 17th. She stayed for about a month before going with her husband to Philadelphia. As a port city with tons of soldiers, a small pox would spread like wildfire. Which is... Both may... <laughs> with smallpox is basically an eradicated disease. It's gone. But back then, it was a severe and deep worry, and you could die from it. It was a very serious illness. But her husband was immune, but Martha was not. So what she did was actually become inoculated. So that is why they left. But while in Philadelphia, Martha herself that very afternoon was inoculated. Right away, she didn't care. She knew that she had to have it done, and she did it to be with her husband, which I admire quite a bit, as germ theory wasn't really understood back then, and it's pretty brave of her to do that. But after that, her husband left to go back to New York while Martha recovered from it. She joined them again by mid-month, but left on June 30th as the English army was advancing. 
With Martha back in Philadelphia, she herself heard the Declaration of Independence before her husband. Her husband received a copy of it on June 9th, but Martha herself was in the city while it was read. And there, I don't know for sure if she actually heard it like firsthand, but the city was abuzz with this knowledge and this declaration. So the fact that she herself, this amazing woman who's arguably pretty much written out of a lot of things or diminished in her capacity, the fact that she was there at such a pivotal moment in history was insane when I read that. It made me so happy. And yes, I know, women and many, many others did not have rights with that declaration. But it was still a very important document, and I think it's really amazing that the First Lady first heard the document. But that's just me. <laughs> in winter of 1777, after New Jersey was back in American hands, Martha arrived that winter in Morristown. She arrived in mid-March. After settling and arranging everything to her liking, she began her sewing circles, making clothes and gloves for soldiers and meeting with the officers' wives, and ensuring her old man, as she called him, was happy. And other officers noted as well the effect she had on him, with General Green remarking, quote, They are very happy in each other, end quote. Martha, like last winter, she stayed with her husband till the fighting resumed in the summer. Back home, Martha wasn't idle, though. She watched over her family and helped her daughter-in-law, Nellie, with the birth of her granddaughter, also named Martha, but called Patty on December 31st, 1777. But she couldn't stay long. She knew her husband needed her and wrote, quote, the general has wrote to me that he cannot come home this winter, but soon as the army is under his command and goes into winter quarters, he will send for me. If he does, I must go. End quote. In early February 1778, Martha joined her husband at the winter encampment at Valley Forge. And to say this was no picnic is, well, that's the best way to say it. Sucked, honestly, is the only way to put it. It was a harsh, brutal winter. Picture starving soldiers, but bloody footprints, a lack of food and clothes. But this is also where the army became a true army and Washington enshrined as a patriotic hero. And Martha, she enshrining the role as a gentle patriotic mother figure, loving, kind, and would do anything to help her fellow soldiers when being an adoring wife to her husband. And both portrayals are true during this winter. A French volunteer soldier remarked with, quote, her presence inspired fortitude, end quote. And also those who visited her with, quote, retired full of hope and confidence, end quote. All the long winter, Martha kept busy with making and mending clothes for soldiers, and when the other wives saw this, they all joined in as well. After six months, a new and vastly different American army rose, and Martha left to go back to Virginia on June 9th. The next few years would be like this, Martha always going to join her husband, and her husband trying to keep this army together and win the war. By the fall of 1779, Washington again set up camp at Morristown again. It was a brutal as Valley Forge. Martha arrived herself just before Christmas. Upon that winter, a prominent young New York lady paid her respects to the general and his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler, also known as Betsy or Eliza Schuyler. She gave a gift to Martha a pair of cuffs, easily based on for Martha to not dirty her sleeves so she could wash them easily. Martha was touched and warmly thanked Eliza and returned her favors with a gift of her own with, quote, some rice pie which she hoped would be acceptable, end quote. It's also known that Martha loved the company of young people and probably thoroughly enjoyed the romance bloom between her husband's aide, Alexander Hamilton, and Eliza Schuyler. It was a bright spot in this very cold and dreary winter. Martha left camp in June and hoped to stay home until she had to leave for her next winter encampment. While home, she, along with many other ladies, helped to raise funds for the army. Martha joined her husband again for winter in 1780 in his new headquarters in New York, Win sorry, New Windsor, New York. During this time, the Battle of Yorktown would begin soon, so Martha planned to go home in May. But she fell sick with a gallbladder attack and spent five weeks in bed. After she recovered, she went home in mid-June. 
While home, she delights in her grandchildren, the old ones, Betsy and Patty, who are five and four, and two younger ones, Nellie, who is two, and George Washington, called Wash, or Washi, who is a newborn. On September 9th, with knowledge of the military attacks going to be on Virginia instead of New York, Washington arrived home. He had been away for six long years, and this would be also the first time he laid eyes on his four grandchildren. He couldn't stay for long, though, just three nights, and was off again with his son Jack with him, although he wasn't an age, so her son could come and go as he pleased. During the siege of Yorktown, we don't know the exact date, but Jack Curtis, Margaret's only surviving child, contracted camp fever, which was assumed to be typhus, as the camp was rampant with it. Not as deadly as smallpox, so Washington assumed he'd survive and get better, but it wasn't meant to be. Jack got a high fever, and a messenger sent word to his wife and mother at Mount Vernon. Jack died three weeks shy of his 27th birthday, with his mother and his wife by his side. This was a crippling blow to Martha, to survive and outlive all of her children. He was buried and had a private funeral soon after. Martha, probably wanting a distraction from her grief, joined her husband in Philadelphia as they traveled to Congress to negotiate the end of the war. They left Philadelphia on March 22, 1782, stopping at several encampments before heading to their headquarters in Newborough, New York. Martha went home in midsummer to spend time with her widowed daughter-in-law, Nellie, and her four children. During much of 1782 and 1783, talks were still held as the nation haggled over the state affairs. Washington stayed firmly with the army, but without the fighting and planning, it was dull, cold, and a waiting game. Martha continued to join her husband as they both waited. Martha was at his side when the soldiers got antsy and unhappy with how Congress and their, and their states treated them. Thankfully, that little disagreement was fixed, though. In April, with the news of an agreement, hopefully peace, arrived at camp. Martha finally went home to Mount Vernon in early October to get ready for her husband, her hopes of at long last a peaceful and private life again. In November, all was said and done, and Washington can go home, but it was a slow going, as everyone wanted to pay respects to their beloved general. Washington read his formal farewell address on December 23rd, and finally, after eight and a half long years, he go home. And fast and hard writing brought it home to Martha on Christmas Eve. And not soon after this, more new changes, as the Washingtons basically adopted their, youngest, their, their son's younger children, Nellie and Washington Curtis. They would live at Mount Vernon with them, and the two older girls would live with their mother, Nellie, who had since remarried. It seemed to ease Martha, as it was like her children made strong again. Little Nellie favored Martha and her beloved daughter, Patsy, with dark hair and beauty, but with a stronger health. Little Washi, as she was called, was an adorable, chubby baby who was beloved. In April of 1785, Martha would lose her mother as she died at the age of 75. She would also lose her only surviving brother, Bat, nine days, nine days later. She had a distraction from her grief as her house was always full of visitors, some friends and family, other foreign military, and some random strangers she wanted to see and quiz her husband, her husband on his life in military. Their guests were also rather shocked at Martha's knowledge and patriotism. Although they enjoyed their guests, but nothing came close to each other. Now in their fifties and nearly thirty years of marriage, it was obvious they were marked on by others their care for each other. They only had these few domestic happiness as in 1787 more political talk was happening and much to Martha's displeasure, Washington agreed to represent Virginia at the new convention in Philadelphia. On May 9, 1787, Washington left, but Martha this time didn't join him. While, they were, while there, it went from revising the Articles of the Confederation to saying screw that and creating the United States Constitution. Finally, after a long, long time of discussing and compromising and changes, it ended on September 17th. The Constitution was created, that's the same one still in use today. Just like the war, they often wrote to each other and Martha took care of the home and their two grandchildren. As the next year, as the states began to ratify, it was becoming obvious that Washington would become president. Martha wrote this upon the piles of letters, always coming with, quote, We have not a single article of news, but politics which I do not concern myself with, end quote. That was to her niece, Fanny. 
On April 14, 1789, he was officially notified of his election as president. I say officially, as it was already obvious. He left within two days for the then capital of New York City, New York. He became president on April 30, 1789. Martha wasn't there upon his inauguration, though. Washington wasted no time electing trusted people for his various secretaries, Henry Knox, Alexander Hamilton, Edmund Randolph, and finally, Thomas Jefferson. That's a lot of people. <laughs> on May 27, Martha, Nellie, and Washi, and a man called Bob Lewis and six slaves arrived in New York. On the corner where the house was, it was boarded St. George's Square, full of the hustle and bustle of the city. From the moment Martha arrived, visitors flocked to her and everyone wanted to be hosted by the president's lady. She was expected to be hostess of two weekly gatherings. They stopped quickly as Washington had some type of abscess on his leg, a nasty large lump on his thigh. Doctors drained it and he had to stay in bed a while. Upon this new worry, a new friendship grew between Martha and the outspoken Abigail Adams. She visited and marked upon the simple beauty and dignity of the First Lady. Once the president was better, it was social madness, so few many people and visitors. Martha had the comfort of her friends from the army now and other government wives, Eliza Hamilton, Lucy Knox, Sarah Jay, and Abigail Adams. Their wives getting along so well helped to smooth stuff over the men in government. More often than not, women get things going. Which just seems to be a fact. It wasn't all business and no pleasure, though. The couple enjoyed going to the theater and weekends were for them and their grandchildren, sometimes inviting friends along with them. Sundays were church days and letter writings, both. Washington and Martha would inquire about home and family. Whew. As Washington set off to see all the Union states, his tour would take about a month. Martha stayed in the city. Abigail Adams often accompanied her. Although Martha enjoyed her friends, she longed for her beloved niece, Fanny, and the comfort of being at home. She greatly missed Washington while he was away. She didn't see as many visitors with him away. And they're in their late 50s by this time, and pretty old by 18th century standards. Christmas of 1789 was quiet, but New Year's Day was a large event in New York, so they were rather busy. As Congress reconvened on, June, on January 4th, 1790, and their living arrangements needed to be different. Cherry Street, for the house they lived on, it wasn't for good what they needed. They moved it to a large house on Broadway, close to Trinity Church, on February 23rd. They rented it from a French minister who was returning to France. Then, back to business, as they've gotten to figure out how to work. Haha, <laughs> I can't English today. They were trying to figure out where to put the United States Capitol. And politics back then weren't very pretty. Because in, 19, in 1790, the government was heating up. New Yorkers, headed by Alexander Hamilton, wanted the Capitol to stay where it was. James Madison and his southern supporters, along with Thomas Jefferson, wanted to be closer to the South. So, political madness, basically. And... I'm going to be perfectly honest, I am not a fan of politics or learning about government history, but it's very important for a lot of these ladies, so I try to cover it as best as I can, but I am not perfect. <laughs> Her husband on Sunday, May 8th, fell sick and bedridden with a high fever on May 17th. It rose to such a high fever, many wondered if he would live. Surprisingly, he pulled through yet again, though he needed a few weeks to recover. To Martha's and everyone else's relief, he was fine. By June 6th, he was well enough to try and smooth things over politically. Since Jefferson had no wife, Martha couldn't smooth things over with Jefferson, and Jefferson, in my opinion, was too much of an ass to imagine Martha had a brain and not just a kind heart. He wasn't a big fan of her. But finally, it was decided that Hamilton would get the banks and they would put the capital in Philadelphia. On July 10th, more friendly outings of the likes of the Knoxes and the Hamiltons, and of course the Adams. On August 30th, 1790, the Washingtons were heading home for the visit to Mount, to Mount Vernon and to pick the place of a new capital. On November 28, 1790, the Washingtons arrived in Philadelphia with their servants and grandchildren. They lived on High Street, also called Market Street. 
While there, they settled into their social calls, visited friends, attended balls and theater as well, and of course, still kept up with church. But there's a catch here. Martha found out from a neighbor that some of his enslaved servants had claimed freedom, as Philadelphia was a free state. And that was a big no-no for slaveholders, so the Washingtons would routinely send them back to Mount Vernon, as after six months of living in Philadelphia, their slaves could claim their freedom. That summer, everyone was sickly, and by August, it was obvious that the Washingtons' overseer, George Augustine, was dying of tuberculosis. So they went home, but came back for Congress when it reconvened on October 28, 1791. Sadly, their dear and beloved nephew had passed away from it and died, though. And boy, during the 90s, the politics were insane. With both Hamilton and Jefferson going at each other's throats and the mastermind behind political attacks on Washington, Martha would soon begin to dislike Jefferson for these reasons. Georgia at first only wanted one term only, but with begging from both sides wanting him for a second term, Martha had no desire and worried the stress and strain of a second term would send her 60-year-old husband into an early grave. But on March 4, 1793, Washington was once again president. And it was out of the frying pan into the fire as the queen and queen as the king and queen of France were beheaded and their dear Lafayette was thrown into an Austrian prison. With the terms of the treaty signed in 1784, the United States had to support France, but in Congress, oh boy. Jefferson, partial to the French, thought yes that they should support them. Hamilton said no, and George ultimately signed the statement of neutrality on April 22, 1793. There was no rest, though, as a deadly yellow fever outbreak broke out in Philadelphia, going through the ports, into the city, and finally to the wealthy, and those who could leave the city did so. By August, it was a mess. Washington wanted to send his family to safety in Virginia while he stayed in the city. Martha wouldn't have it, though. If he was going to stay, she would stay. His close advisors had already left, but that was to be expected. Finally, the Washingtons left on September 10th, not before Martha sent wine and good wishes to her dear friends, the Hamiltons, as both Elizabeth and Alexander fell sick with the fever, but, to Martha's relief, they pulled through. The Washingtons spent that fall at their beloved Mount Vernon. Upon the end of this outbreak, it was business as usual again. The couple, though, were starting to show their age, and the second term was a drain on them both. Now into their 60s, George was becoming somewhat deaf and stooped, and Martha a rather plump, grandmotherly figure. In the summer of 1794, farmers were unhappy with a federal tax, and it would soon lead to the whiskey insurrection. Although it ended with a government warning, it still caused stress and worry for the Washingtons. And the anti-government, anti-federalist press had a field day, hitting on both Hamilton and Washington. Martha hated this negative image and talk about her husband. Martha and her grandchildren went home in July for a stay. Upon Nellie, the mother of the granddaughter, Nellie, she wanted her daughter to stay with her as she worried Martha and the city was spoiling her. Upon this, Nellie, the granddaughter's, hurt feelings were obvious when she remarked this in a letter to a friend with, quote, no one believed I should be left behind. However, it is so. To part from Grandmama is all I dread. It is impossible to love anyone more than I love her. End quote. And Martha longed for her dear granddaughter, too. Another June and another change. The Lafayette's son, named George Washington Lafayette, came to stay with Washingtons in Philadelphia. Another change was when their slave, Una Judge, escaped to her freedom. Despite having people look for her, she was never, ever caught. Upon the last year of the president's run, 1797, the cold winter brought many visitors to the couple. Remaining just long enough to see John Adams become president on March 4, 1797, the Washington said their goodbyes to friends in Philadelphia. Those long years as president were finally over, and both could look forward to the domestic life with their grandchildren, their slaves, and the mountains of baggage they began the journey back to Mount Vernon. It took them a week. They arrived home on March 15, 1797. And with eight years away, the house needed some love, but, but both threw themselves into it. But at 65, Martha didn't want to run all over the house, so she appointed a local woman to be the housekeeper and jokingly appointed her now 18-year-old granddaughter Nellie as deputy housekeeper. 
Just as with after the war, their home was full of visitors, and many still remarked on Martha's beauty, although it was her lovely and lively personality that shined brightest. In 1798, amid looming concerns of war with the French, President Adams appointed Washington as the once-again commander of the American army. But Washington made it clear that he would only fight if it was on American soil. He, to the president's displeasure, appointed his friend Hamilton to be a second-in-command. But as 1999 began, the president sent representatives to France, and it ended with the treaty being signed. A bright spot was also the wedding of her adopted granddaughter Nellie to a widow named Lawrence Lewis in 1799. The couple would live with the Washingtons while they built their home. The winter of 1799 was cold and a bitter one. On December 12th, the beloved husband came from a daily ride. Cold and shivering but unfettered, he continued his routine. By the next day, he had a sore throat and was congested. By the night, he had stopped breathing briefly. Martha called for the doctor by dawn, but it was obvious Washington was dying. Martha left him only to fetch two wills and to check on Nellie, who had given birth and was resting. Finally, on the evening of December 4th, her beloved husband of 40 years passed away. Martha remarked this to her dear friend Lear, this quote, Is he gone? End quote. When he said yes, she shocked replied, Tis well, all is now over, I shall soon follow him, I have no more trials to pass through. End quote. She soon sent word to all their friends and family. His body was laid in state for three days according to his wishes, but the night he died, Martha moved into a small third-floor bedroom. She closed their bedroom and his study for good, never again to share the room they slept together in for so long in her grief. Their daughter-in-law, Nellie, and her husband and children came, so did their many friends, along with their grandchildren and Nellie and her baby. Only Washi couldn't, couldn't come as he was too far away in New Kent to go to the funeral. But not Martha. The grief-stricken Martha didn't attend, didn't go to the funeral. She stayed home in silent mourning. After the guest left, life attempted to resume, but to Martha, life wouldn't ever be the same again, because living without him was unthinkable. As always, Washington's concern was Martha. She was to retain and keep all the income upon her death it would go to the family. Family stayed close to Martha, and her beloved Nellie stayed with her. Martha, upon his death, was asked by so many mementos of her late husband, and with the help of Nellie and Lear, she sent them. Upon Washington's death, he, was, he wanted to release his slaves, and although many weren't his to free, they belonged to the Curtis estate, and so Martha had control over it. She did release Washington's in 1801, though. Upon her later years, she revised her will, left considerable sums and money to her many family members, along with almost all to Washington and Nellie. In the first week of May, 1802, Martha had an awful stomachache and called for the doctor. Martha was given a few weeks to live, and she gathered her family close to her. On May 22, 1802, Martha Curtis Washington breathed her last. Surrounded by her family for three days, her body rested in her coffin in the dining room, and she was buried on May 25th. And that's it. The first of the First Ladies, a loyal and loving wife, and a patriot in her own right, Martha Stain withered the coming of the U.S. independence and the government. An incredible figure and icon in her own right, she shines just as bright as her husband despite her, lit her hidden legacy. And what do I mean by hidden? Well, she burned her letters and some biographies use this to try to make out that he only wanted her money, or that the couple were not a happy and loving couple. But by all accounts... It seems false. They had never shared separate bedrooms, and the, by three, the three remaining letters all start with my dearest. It's a love story. Granted, not grand, but a profound and lasting one. Her legacy as a mother, a patriot, and a wife, and the first of the first ladies should not be tossed aside. She was very, very integral to the success of her husband. He relied on her heavily, just she relied on him. And I think that is a beautiful partnership. But that's it for me today, guys. If you enjoyed, I'm very glad. You can see sources and photos on my Instagram at Subtle Make History, and I will see you guys soon.